0: Uh, with a silver cup in his bag, and uses that as a pain point uh, to press his brothers and to trick them into having to take Benjamin captive. And so that's what he does. At that point, uh, Judah, one of the twelve brothers, steps forward and interposes on behalf of his youngest uh, brother, uh, Benjamin, And pleads for his life and actually uh, lays down his life to say, Let me serve in prison as your slave in place of Benjamin, that you would let him go free. That's where we pick up today. You find this in Genesis 45. Joseph heard Judah say such a word like that. And he could not control himself. Before those, all who stood by him, he cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. And Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud, so that uh, the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near, and he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into slavery. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth, and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Now hurry and go up to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come now to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me, you and your children and your children's children and your flocks and your herds and all that you have. There I will provide for you. For there are yet five years of famine to come so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and of all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and he wept. And Benjamin wept upon his neck. And listen to this. Then he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. That's amazing. Do you know that he loves you and you're forgiven? Look at that. He kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your household, and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and that you may eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and for your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods. For the best of the land is, of Egypt is yours. And the sons of Israel did so. And Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of Joseph and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes. But to Benjamin he gave 300 shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows 10 Donkeys loaded with good things from Egypt, and ten female donkeys loaded with grain and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, do not quarrel on the way. All of our quarreling, what is it to God but foolishness? So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan, to their father Jacob, Hear the gospel in this. And they told him, Joseph is alive. He is the ruler over all the land of Egypt. And his heart became numb and he did not believe them. And when they told him of all his words, the words of Joseph, have you heard the word of God? Which he had said to them. And when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, The spirit of his father, Jacob, revived. And Israel said, it is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. I had an opportunity a few weeks ago to speak to one of the small children from this church. And uh, relate to her uh, the story uh, of Jacob and Esau. He said that there was uh, a mother of Rebekah who actually had two babies in her belly. She had twins. And they were wrestling one another inside of her belly. And she said, What is wrong? Why is this bothering me so? And it was told her that there were two nations inside of her. And as I was relaying this story to a small mind that might have never really come across this truth before, I said, You see, when there's twins in the mother, one child still has to come out first. Very painful. Try to do that at the same time. I mean, I wouldn't know. but. Um, And so I said, actually, even though they were twins, one was older. There was a firstborn. And his name was Esau. And then later, Jacob grabbed his heel and came on out. And he was younger. And the oldest one had a birthright, which meant that they got all the toys and all the better things. Because they were the firstborn. And I related to her and said, But you see, the little brother, Jacob, wanted the birthright, so he tricked his big brother with a big bowl of soup. But then once Esau, the firstborn, found out that he had been tricked, he became very, very angry. Esau was enraged, and he chased after his little brother, and his little brother ran away. Which every kid that would ever know any other siblings can relate to the story. But what's amazing to what this little girl said, right after I relayed all of that, without pausing almost to even reflect as though she was following me the whole time and actually knew how these social dynamics work at a very micro level, she immediately said, well, why couldn't they just share the birthright? And I didn't say anything. Because I said, that's the most profound thing I've ever heard. I've never thought about that. I think about scripture a lot. I've never thought about that. She was right. That's the whole point. Because we're still in the book of Genesis. And now, the tricky one, Jacob, his children, they're still fighting about the birthright. But here we find the wisdom of a small little girl. It's the wisdom of God. Faith like a child. Jesus Christ is the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 1.15 says he is the image of the invisible God and the firstborn of the whole world. Everything is his. He's the guy that owns it all. And we all are fighting about it. And the whole reason the gospel is so offensive, the whole reason so many are so resistant to believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ and be saved, is because the first truth to accept in that gospel call is Jesus is Lord. And that is offensive when you think you're Lord and we wake up from our moments of consciousness looking into this whole world and saying, mine! And conversion is nothing more than looking into this whole world and saying, yours! And I am yours! That little flip is the difference between life and death, darkness and light, that Jesus Is the firstborn. Jesus said this about how he relates to his father more than any other man. In John 14 he said, let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, since I am the firstborn, I have access to every hallway I can roam. There are many rooms And if it were not so, I would not have told you that I go and prepare a place for you in my Father's house. And I will take you to myself, that you will be with me where I am. That was Jesus' parting words shortly before he would descend into the pit, which he would die for you and I. For in Christ Jesus, Galatians 3 says... You, male and female, are all sons, you see. You, male female, are all sons of God, it says in Galatians three twenty six. For as many of you who have been baptized in Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for we are all one in Christ. The birthright... The firstborn, typically given only to the first male of the family in that culture. That image, that right, that prerogative, that righteousness, the blessing extends now to all of us. That we all are sons of God. And allowed into the house to inherit all these great things. It's like looking at the difference between a forest from the tree... I hope, and some here, uh, it's a joy to have you if you're visiting for the first time, or you haven't really been with us as we've been walking through the story of Joseph, to take a minute, and if you can bear with me, I am compelled pastorally that when I have the privilege to look at the wisdom of God's prophetic word in great detail, the trial, when you you first start preaching it's hard to preach because you just don't know how to preach. And then when you become more confident preaching, it still gets harder because your knowledge of God's Word is so much more deeper that you're like thinking, there's no way I can fit this into a sermon, but I almost have to say it, and I don't know how without burdening, but edifying the church. That is, oh, that's a trial. That is a trial. I need to be sanctified. There's so much to it that I'm asking you to come along with me, and I want to get away from the tree Just this one passage in Genesis 45. And I want you to remember now. Let's look at the whole thing and see what's really going on. The whole story of Joseph. It all began, as we recall, this is a review. And for us who are here for the first time, this is being dropped in. You can't appreciate what we just read until I say this for you. It all began with this young boy who had a multicolored tunic. Joseph, the youngest of them all, was given that tunic, multicolored, and his uh, brothers didn't like it very much. The word multicolored tunic is really not the clearest translation. It, in the Hebrew particularly, means a tunic, kutoneth, that has uh, long sleeves, most likely. And in that ancient culture, a tunic with long sleeves was usually associated with inheritance or some child who was born of royalty, And now, with that knowledge in the back of your mind, you can see why this would elicit that kind of visceral anger from all his other brothers who happen to be older. And they're seeing this younger one being put to a higher place of position in their father's eyes, almost like the firstborn. But he's the lastborn, and that's incredibly offensive. And so, Joseph has two dreams. And the two dreams doubled up to say that he will have his father and his mother and all his brothers bow down to him. Oh, and if that wasn't enough for the tunic, that was it for his brothers. They were so furious that Jesus Christ was Lord, you see. That same impulse, that same offense, that some carpenter from Nazareth is your king. That the secular atheists of our age will say, a, a carpenter from an ancient world where they didn't have smartphones is going to be my source of wisdom in an old ancient text? Exactly. That's exactly it. You got it. He is the firstborn of all creation. And he came in such a way that it insults everything in our human pride and ego. He had to do it that way. And so the brothers are very, very enraged. Kind of like Esau was with his brother. And so they want to kill him. And they see him coming and they say, look at what this dreamer of dreams is coming to us. Let's see what comes of his dreams if we kill him. And Judah interposed, actually, in that moment, one of the brothers and said, What profit will we get if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Let's sell him to slavery. After all, he says, You have to hear this phrase. After all, he says, He is our own flesh and blood. He is our own flesh and blood. And so they present to their father, a shredded garment in blood. Here it is, Jacob. And Jacob infers from it, my son is surely dead, while the animals have destroyed him. And he has went down to Sheol, uh, the pit of death, and I will have to follow after him. Now, the story pauses, and if you didn't understand, you'd say, why is the very next thing, the episode after this, in which they sell Joseph off to slavery and fake and frame his own death with his own garment that was supposed to be his garment of righteousness and honor. Why does it go immediately to this random story of Judah, who has uh, sexually inappropriate relations uh, with his daughter-in-law, that she garment herself in the cloak of a prostitute and hid and played the part of a prostitute. And he gave himself into a sexual license and sexual selfishness and had sex with her and sexual relations and to pay her. The price of the prostitute was his, the word's important, his pledge. He pledged his signet ring his cord, his staff, unique emblems and icons associated to his own personal identity as a pledge that he would pay the price of a prostitute quietly behind closed doors for no one else should see his own self-righteousness, was shattered. Shattered. When she publicly presented his pledge that could not be denied, His own credit card with its own routing number. That is Judah. He's the one who did that weird, wicked, sexual stuff. And his own self-righteousness, it's important. His own self-righteousness was shattered. And he said, she is more righteous than I. He was broken. He was humiliated. Have you had this yet? There's no way you will bow your knee to a carpenter unless he has broken you first. And so he was broken. And what we realize is all the brothers are being disqualified. The firstborn brothers, that is. Reuben, Genesis 35, has sexual sins. Genesis 35, 22. The second brother... Simeon, the third brother Levi, go out and murder a whole city as murderers. The fourth brother now, Judah, we know, as far as the birthright's concerned, is sexually sin in prostitution with Tamar. Then we pause and go back to Joseph, and we see now Joseph having another garment stripped off him. The garment was taken uh, from him by his brothers when he was younger, and now he's working for his slave master, Potiphar, and his wife approaches him and says, "'Sleep with me,' and grabs his garment, and he runs away naked. And therefore, another garment is taken from him and framed him for a false narrative to be an adulterer. It positions him in prison, in which two men approach him with dreams, another double dream. And the first man is the chief cupbearer, and he has a dream.' And the other man is the chief baker, and he has a dream. And Joseph interprets those dreams appropriately. But it wasn't until two years later, as the chief cupbearer remembers Joseph's interpretation before Pharaoh, that Joseph approaches Pharaoh. And sure enough, Joseph interprets Pharaoh's double dream, the final of the double dreams in all of Joseph's story. And Joseph says to Pharaoh, the doubling of your dream, you see, Pharaoh, is a thing that is fixed. You've been given an oracle from God. It is perfect. It is unable to fail. The seven emaciated cows that you've seen and the seven thin ears of grain that you've seen represent seven years of famine to come. And there is nothing you can do or I can do to change the matter. It is God's divine word. It will be this way. As a result of that, Joseph became the chief cupbearer and the chief baker in all of Israel. How remarkable. Everyone came to him for bread. And here he has the silver cup of divination. This whole thing transitions now to find where we are this morning. The doubling. The reality that two things would coalesce to be veritable or true. To prove itself to be true. We find at the end Judah emerge and Joseph stand at his judgment throne and the two brothers interlock at the climax of the story that we find God's double grace that has been at work this whole time. Theologians speak of it as the duplex gratia Dei. The double grace of God. That is, you and I will only stand at the judgment throne of Christ and been given grace to stand at that judgment throne by this double word from God. A double dream, if you like, a double oracle. A double prophetic wisdom of a truth that cannot be altered, that cannot be changed, that is fixed, and God must bring it about. That you would be receiving the grace of justification and the grace of sanctification. That they come together for your salvation. And apart from this double grace, you and I have no hope to stand before the man. The man on the throne. And the reason why all of Joseph's brothers are petrified of him, is they know him nothing more than this very powerful, nameless, shadowy figure who is an Egyptian, who is meddling in all of their life to try to condemn them, frame them, and imprison them. That fear is a real existential fear if you or I consider our own lives and sins. That this is God's judgment upon our life. This image of this double work of God finding here now between Judah and Joseph. See, God, if you've ever played chess, you realize how much smarter computers are than us. I don't know what level you can make Level 3, level 4, level 5. But there's a level out there in which you're never going to win again. The best, the best was Bobby Fischer. I don't know if we're related. Uh, but obviously not probably. Uh, if you play chess to a certain level, it's remarkable how smart these computers can be, of course. Look at this. Who controls all of the world? He causes Ephesians 1.11. All things to work together. All things to work out according to his will. See, he is the massive master chess player. Moving and drawing and concurring. Everything we've seen in Joseph's life to bring him to this moment. That he would be sitting on this position of authority and a throne in Egypt. But now we find... And this one has been more discreet, less direct. That he also has been moving the chess pieces on the board for Judah. That Judah's life has been moving to this very moment. In which he would interlock with Joseph. And speak for Benjamin on his brother's behalf. The whole narrative, the whole point of all the things God has done has brought to this climax in this moment. To draw and press and place Judah in this position as well. So that we would see the shadow, the shadow of the servant who saves. That it was the moment that Judah was moved with compassion for his brother Benjamin, in which he said, Take my life and save his. The gospel, that is, substitutionary atonement, that is, take my life and save his. At that moment and no other, we are told that Joseph is finally revealing his secret. He divulges himself to his brothers and says, I am Joseph. The one who's judging you is your brother. I am the one you sold to slavery. I am your own flesh and blood. Merry Christmas. If you haven't got a Christmas greeting yet, that was it. I am your flesh and blood. I am with you. I am like you. I am not just any Egyptian. I'm actually a Jew. And I know you. We grew up together. We ate together. I know what you've done to me. I know how you tried to kill me. And I'm still alive. And I love you. And I love you. How do you know that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ? Jesus Christ is warned in John 5 and hour is coming, and now is, when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of God and come out, and those who have done good to a resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to a resurrection of judgment. now the gospel is this, that we ask, is there not a prophet among us? Like Joseph, who can say to Pharaoh, there is a doubling truth in which it is fixed without a shadow of doubt that you will stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that you will be able to give an account for perfect righteousness. Wouldn't it be wonderful if someone still had that gift? If Joseph could come back into this room and say, let me tell you, peace be upon your mind, the doubling of this oracle is fixed, that God will bring it about, that you will stand at the day of judgment. Do you realize that is the gospel, that God could give you that type of word, that you would know that you are righteous in Christ. The doubling of it is, justification, sanctification. These double words come through the Gospel, by the Spirit, to mediate upon your mind the reality that you are to stand before the man and have a resurrection of life. A certain word to contradict all our contradictory words, that is, all our thoughts and words and deeds that could meet us at the judgment as a resurrection for judgment. That there is a more powerful word, there is a more powerful oracle that is actually more true than all of our sins. We find it here as we look at the particular working of the gospel between Judah and Joseph that we are told if we repent of our sins and believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we will be saved. We will be saved because the same, the same power of the word that will bring all dead men from the tombs at the general resurrection and therefore judgment of the world is the same power, the same powerful word that is speaking today in the gospel call. To call men now to hear his voice before it is too late to hear his voice for the last time. That he could call you to life now before he calls you from the tomb later. To call you to stand now perfectly righteous before him in the name of Jesus Christ. That powerful word is among us today by the grace of the gospel. And that powerful word comes in a duplex, a double, a veracity, a truthfulness that can be evaluated and taken in and stood upon with accuracy and confidence. The double grace of God. Do you know of this In your life. When we say that, the double grace of God is this that God has justified you and sanctified you. To be justified is a free act of God's grace in which He does two things He pardons you of all your sins, every one the ones you've already done, the ones you might be doing now, and the ones that you will do for your whole life, pardons you of all your sins and accepts you. Joseph and his brothers, what kind of forgiveness was that? What kind of pardon was that? He fell on their necks. He embraced them and baptized them in his tears. If you don't understand that that is how the Lord Jesus Christ has forgiven you, you must be made free. You must be made free from the condemnation of your sins. You will have no life. You will have no joy. Not only has he pardoned you, you see, He has accepted you, accepted you. You must accept that He has accepted you. Believe upon the Lord. But not only that, He sanctifies you, you see. These double oracles come together. That it is the work of God's free grace in which He renews you after His image and enables you more and more to kill your sin and to live in righteousness. Double. They come together. How do you know that you truly have believed upon the Lord? How do you know that you aren't just giving yourself lies to placate your conscience that you're justified? Because if you're justified, the double oracle, the truth, the reality, then you will be sanctified. If you believe upon the Lord Jesus, you will begin to walk like the Lord Jesus and when you see yourself walking like the Lord Jesus and you look inside the mirror of God's word and you actually see images and glimpses of the face of Jesus Christ, you know that you once say, see his face and be made like him with a joy inexpressible and full of glory, that you will stand for the resurrection of life, not the resurrection of judgment. The same powerful spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead, now is a work in you, renewing your own likeness to his. That that power will meet you there in perfect glorification and you will be sinless never to sin again. And you will shine like the sun as a radiance and effulgence of the glory that comes from his own essence and nature. That is a confidence to know. A word given. Now you have to see that that's all here. The sermon Ceres as Joseph, as the servant who saves. Do you realize this is how he saves? Justification is you in Christ. Sanctification, Christ in you. Justification, Romans 3 all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. Through the redemption that is in, in, redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation in his blood to be received. Take that gift in by faith. See, justified in Christ, but sanctified as Christ in you. Philippians 2, therefore we work out our salvation, With fear and trembling. Knowing that it is God who is working in you. Both to will and to work for his good pleasure. How do you know you're in Christ? Duplex gratia Dei. I hope you remember that. It's fun to say. How do you know that you're in Christ? Well, because Christ is in you. There's an interrelation. You do not anchor large ships with rope. The ocean will rip those ropes apart like the smallest dental floss. Ships are anchored with chains because there's links. It's stronger. It's a stronger bond. Ropes just wrap side by side. You do a little bit. Jesus does a little bit. You do a little bit, and you twine each other around, and maybe you don't die in the judgment seat of Christ. Maybe you worked a little harder. Maybe you were particularly good with your Thomistic Roman Catholic theology, and you did extra penance, and maybe you didn't. Maybe there's purgatory. Who knows? Good luck. Light a candle at the church and give us some more money. I can maybe get some more help. No. 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 It's a false gospel. You are saved by chains, you see links Now Christ is in you and you are in Christ that linking that doesn't break it's one the one who justifies you puts you inside him is also the one that goes inside you and he has linked you for eternal life that you will not be lost at sea In the chasm of Sheol, of the death, of the shadowy waters in which no one returns. Christ in you, and you in Christ. That chain will hold. Why? It is a double oracle fixed by God. It cannot not happen. For God will bring it about. It has nothing to do with you. Now watch this beauty. And I do have more time. I see the clock. <laughs> Judah and Joseph, the climax of the double grace. The climax of the Joseph story of the servant who saves is that God justifies the sinner and sanctifies the saint. The sanctification of Judah, do you see it? That Joseph now, for the first time in the whole story is inside Judah. For the first time in the whole story, there is someone else who is also saving through service. Everything that Joseph has been doing in his life has been serving others. Potiphar, his father, the candlestick maker, and the baker, and everyone else. He's been serving everybody. Now he's serving the greatest of all, Pharaoh. This is the first time in which someone else is serving someone else. Judah is serving. See, there is a habit of Joseph inside Judah. The first time we find a transformation of Judah. That Judah is thinking along these lines. He's acting something like Joseph. Acting something like Jesus, that there is Jesus inside him, a Joseph habit or character or sanctification inside him, in which he says, Now, please, let me, let me serve in Benjamin's stead. Let him live and let me sacrifice. Let him be saved and let me serve him to even the point of my own death. See, all the point leads to this. He is willing to lay down his life for his brother. The flip. It has to be Judah. Because he was the one who was willing to sacrifice his brother in slavery. That was his idea. The reason he's standing before Joseph is because of his previous sins. And so he was willing to lay down his brother in sacrifice. And now he is willing to lay down his life in sacrifice for his brother. A transformation has happened. This man is being made holy. He's willing to Change, contemplate taking his brother's life. Now he's willing to save his brother's life. And not only that, you know why he's willing to do this? He said, I made myself a pledge for my brother. Has Judah made any other pledges before? Didn't he pledge his own credit card for the price of a prostitute? And didn't that just wreck him of his own self-righteousness and humiliate him in front of everybody? Have you had that happen to you? Now, instead of giving himself as a pledge for self-satisfaction and sexual sin, he's giving his own life as a pledge for self-sacrificial love for his brother. That's the power of God. That is what you and I are called to, you see. But it's not just that. There's a justification in Judah. And we close with this. You see not only is Joseph in Judah. You see that Judah is in Joseph. At that point, Joseph reveals himself. I'm your brother. Therefore, Judah, your blood, Judah, runs through my veins. We are of the same father. We are of the same family. It is not just some random Egyptian judging you. Your own flesh and blood, your brother who loves you, judges you. And that would be the only reason to stand at the judgment. The Christmas promise is that he has flesh and blood like us. That he knows us. He's lived our life. And been tempted in every way without sin. But that life he lived was for you. Therefore. You stand. He is your brother. He judges you with love. And grace. Not as a random stranger. That is the grounds of his justification. What follows is that the brothers when they reveal that Joseph is who he is. Are all dismayed. As the day of judgment of course will be. You stand there naked before God and be like, oh my, this is bad. That obviously in your own conscience can imagine things. And look at this forgiveness. Look at what he has done for him. He says, come near, come near, come near. I am your brother who you sold in slavery. Now do not be distressed. And do not be angry with yourself. It's one thing for Joseph to say, I am your brother, you did sell me into slavery. I'm going to let you guys go, get out of here. I never want to see you again. Do not, by the authority of the word of God, I say to you this morning, do not consider your justification as such. Do not Let yourself not forgive yourself. He leans into his brothers and almost in a whisper saying come close and just forgives them in one little verse. No big paragraph, no big diatribe, no big self-righteous grandstanding and just says, and immediately goes to their heart and says, now I don't want you to be troubled considering my whole life has been troubled because of you. I couldn't bear the thought that you would be a little perturbed by the fact that I'm here. Because I love you that much. You don't understand my presence in front of you. Immediately concerned for you. Don't even be angry with yourself. If you are bothered by this, it bothers me. I love you that much. That kind of forgiveness. That kind of toleration. See, justification not only is a pardoning, but an accepting. He accepts you. He says to his brothers, now come here. Come near to me. Come near. I won't hurt you. Come here and let me tell you something. Don't be troubled. I love you. You're justified. You're forgiven. The forgiveness of the feelings that Jesus Christ feels for your own felicity. He wants you to be happy in him. Not just tolerate him. For he's doing much more than just tolerating you. He loves you. He wants you to have joy. He wants you to wake up with a free conscience. A mind that is clean. One that comes close and says, now be happy in me. Justified and accepted, not tolerated. That is this great commission that's given. Go to your father and say, Joseph is alive. Goats, wagons, the best of the land, Goshen, all the images of salvation and righteousness poured on their heads. In closing, as we end, consider the beginning. This all started because those brothers wanted that fancy coat and look how it has ended. They thought they were threatened that Joseph might inherit a little bit more of their fa- their father 's wealth and it ends with all of them being in threat of losing all their food and wealth and being put into dentured servitude by A famine. And Joseph coming with an alien righteousness from Egypt. Absolute wealth in which everything is given to them. Just like the birthright's not even on the table. Who wants a few goats from Jacob? Joseph is king of the world, you see. It's an alien righteousness. If all the things we are proud of and all our best works are just filthy rags. And it ends by this. He sends them provision. And wagons. And verse 22 says. And to each one of them. He gave a change of clothes. Oh my God. Do you hear what he has done? The wisdom of a small little girl. Why couldn't we just share the birthright? Praise God that he is God. God. And he has come into creation to be the first point of creation so that he might inherit all things and share them with his brothers and sisters. For if you or I were given that title, our corrupt hearts would not do as much. Merry Christmas, for he has worn our clothes and our flesh that we might wear his clothes in righteousness. He has shared the garments, the ones we tried to take off from him by killing him. He's come back and clothed us with an alien wealth that is not of this world, the righteousness of God. Dear Father God, we thank you for what you have given us. That you have given us a change of clothes After we have tried to strip you of all your honor and glory. All of our sins are high-handed rebellion against your majesty. Rebellion to claim that we should be the firstborn. Father, you've broken us of our self-righteousness. I pray, Father, anyone here who is not trusted in you. And trusts in their own things. They will be broken like Judah. And they would come to your throne of grace. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.